If you have a copy of scripture with you this morning, I would love to invite you to open to Colossians 1. Our sermon text this morning will be Colossians 1, verses 13 through 23. Colossians 1, verses 13 through 23. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we come before you now with uh, eager hearts and minds and ears, Lord. I pray that you can open um, our ears, open our minds, that we can receive this word, uh, that we can hear your word, Lord, and pray, Lord, that as you promise, that you will work through this word, that you'll use this word to form us, to form us more and more into the image of Christ, to help us to know him more and to love him more. And we just pray, Lord, that your glory may be displayed through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many of you are movie buffs or not, but it was recently the award season, that time of the year when there's all these award shows for all these different movies. And if you were paying attention to any of the award shows, you might have heard about a movie called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, it was uh, nominated for 11 Academy Awards and ended up winning seven of those awards. And it's a bit of a complex topic for a movie, but it talks about this idea of multiple versions of reality, parallel existences to our own. Uh, and they call it the multiverse. And they use this concept to try and comment about the fragmented and even absurd nature of our internet-dominated society. It's a movie that's trying to ask how or even if we can make sense of this modern world. And one of the directors, Daniel Kwan, he said in several uh, interviews that this movie is a direct response to him losing his faith as a former Christian and as a former evangelical. And he doesn't go into detail about how he lost his faith. But if we take this movie as an example, perhaps we can think about how that might have happened. Perhaps his experience of an ever-growing, an ever-confusing, and an ever-fragmented world undermined his view of Christ. Perhaps his world kept getting bigger and bigger while his idea of Christ remained relatively the same size, relatively small. 
And perhaps his understanding of Christ simply wasn't compelling enough to take on a world that promised everything. And does that make sense? I mean, if Jesus is nothing more than a moral teacher, a political ruler, or even a source of self-esteem, then of course he won't remain compelling to us in the midst of everything that this world says it can offer us. Of course he will seem too small to give a meaningful answer to the craziness and the absurdity of this world. And yet, we all do it. We craft Jesus into the image of our political affiliation, into the image of our checkbooks, or our individual values. We gather on Easter and we forget the point of the cross. We forget who Jesus says he is, and as a result, we simply begin to forget Jesus. You see, because any version of Jesus that's crafted in our own image and what we think he should look like, it'll never be able to compete with a world that offers us anything and everything all the time. But thankfully, that's not who Jesus is, because that's not a Jesus who can save. That's not a Jesus who can provide an answer to this ever growing, this ever crazy, this ever fragmenting world. You see, instead, Colossians 1, our passage this morning, it proclaims that Jesus is the exalted Lord over everything. And he has come to redeem and reconcile sinners to himself. See, he's not powerless against this ever-expanding universe, but rather he's Lord over every single inch of it. And so we're going to take up this text under three headings. We're going to look at uh, first, Lord over creation. Second, Lord over new creation. And third, Lord over us. So first, verses 15 through 17, they paint Jesus in these cosmic terms as the Lord over all creation. We see that in verse 15, Jesus is referred to as the firstborn of all creation, which is one of those phrases that kind of makes you tilt your head. What does Paul mean when he says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation? What does it mean that Jesus is firstborn in the first part? Uh, well, some of you uh, eagle-eyed theologians might know that this passage has been used by ancient Arians, by Jehovah's Witnesses, by Mormons, to assert that Jesus is God's foremost creation, that he is utterly distinct from the rest of creation, but still a part of the created order. But we see from the very next verse that any notion that Jesus is created is impossible because he is called firstborn of all creation, verse 16, because by him all things were created. So Paul is saying that because Jesus created all things, we're to call him the firstborn of all creation. So he's not saying that Jesus is created and we call him firstborn. He's saying that for some reason, because Jesus created, he's to be called firstborn of creation. So again, we ask, what does Paul mean when he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? Well, in short, it means that Jesus is preeminent, means that he is supreme over all things. For example, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know, Israelite sons, the firstborn son had first rights in terms of honor, in terms of glory, in terms of the inheritance that would be divided amongst the children. Or if we look at Psalm 89, it refers to David as the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So it's not talking about Jesus as some kind of creature. It's not talking about Jesus as the first creature in some way. 
Instead, it's saying that he's the foremost, that he is supreme, that he is preeminent over all creation. And that's what it means for Jesus to be firstborn. And our text highlights Jesus's preeminence in two very important ways. First, we see that Jesus is preeminent in glory. He is preeminent in glory as the Son of God. Paul says in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And when we hear that word image, our minds immediately want to go back to the garden, right? That we are created in the image of God, male and female. And that's a good instinct. As human beings, we reflect God's image. But instead of merely reflecting God's image, Jesus reveals the image of God. Jesus bears the image of God in a way that is distinct from how we do. If we look at John 1.18, it says that Jesus has made God known to us. He also says in John 14.9 that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. See, Jesus can make the invisible God visible because he is not just fully man, but also fully God. Colossians 2.9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So as human beings, even though we have been made sons and daughters in Christ, even though we reflect the image of God, there is a special way in which Jesus reveals God to us. Jesus is always and only the eternal, natural, only begotten Son of God in a unique and special way. And this means that in Jesus, we have the fullest revelation of God possible. The entirety of God's goodness, power, grace, and mercy are on display in Jesus. Everything that makes God glorious is everything that makes Jesus glorious. We couldn't think of a person more glorious if we tried, because he is fully man, but also fully God. And so he's preeminent in glory, but the second thing we see is that he's preeminent in power, and specifically preeminent in power as a creator. See, nobody and nothing can match this creative power that Christ has. Look at the list of things that he's created in verse 16. He created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him. And what I find fascinating about this list is the sheer scale of the list. When you think about it, right? It doesn't just include things that we can see, which is overwhelming enough, but things that we can't see. You see, when Paul talks about things like thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, especially if you look at books like Ephesians, he's speaking about spiritual power, spiritual realities that we can't even begin to perceive. And so he's talking about the rulers of the spiritual realities and also those that we see on the news day to day. And yet Jesus is Lord over all of those rulers, all those things that we can see and not see, because there is nothing that God has not created, not a single thing. And the sheer scale of this, it reminds me of one of my favorite passages, Isaiah 40 verses 12. And it's talking about God and his creative power. And he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, which is about the length between your thumb and your pinky finger? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. He's created 
all these aspects of creation. My wife and I actually just came back from Yosemite on our way here. And if you've ever been to Yosemite, if you've stood in the valley, it has this amazing way of making you feel so small. This amazing way of realizing just how vast God's creation is, just how beautiful, just how mighty it is that these mountains, these things that seem immovable, were carved by the very hand of God. Or if we even take it to a bigger scale, if any of you guys are um, fans of space and the new James Webb Telescope, some of the images that's been able to capture, we've seen these images with the Hubble Telescope and we're, it's amazing that they could capture this. And then James Webb comes in and it produces all of these colors, all of these details, all of these nuances. And it's amazing. And you take a step back and you realize that God made that. Christ was the creator of all of these things. And so we see that everything, big to small, whether it's stars, planets, galaxies, molecules, atoms, animals, mountains, or trees, all of it was created by our glorious God. And so our knowledge of this universe, it's constantly growing. Every new discovery, every new satellite image has a way of making us seem, feel smaller and smaller. And yet we can remain hopeful. We can hold on to our sanity because we know that this is all grounded in the God who created it all. We're not little specks in an ever-growing universe that's meaningless. We're in a beautiful universe of creative power and glory that God is constantly displaying. And so he's the one that stands behind and above it all. And therefore we see that by Jesus' person and works that he is the Lord of creation, the firstborn. All things were created through him and for him, verse 17 says. They were created through him, meaning that they are the product of his work, but it also says that they were created for him. And there's two things that Paul means by saying that all of creation was made for him. First, all of creation just displays his glory, shows just how glorious he is, that he is to be worshiped because of all of his good works, shows that he is full of creative power. But second, it shows that all creation has been made for him in terms of an inheritance. Hebrews 1-2, it speaks of Christ as both the creator, but also the heir of all things. Christ is the ultimate goal of creation. But you might be asking yourself, how can Christ, the creator of all things, also be an heir of his creation? How are you an heir of something that originates with you? Well, it's because he created all things good, but his good creation didn't remain good. We all know that we as humanity, we fell into sin, that every inch of his creation now suffers the curse of the sin is corrupted by sin. We know that this world isn't as it should be. And therefore, because of this, because of sin, because of corruption, because of death, because his good creation didn't stay good, it became necessary for him to become the heir of his creation, to set things right. So therefore, the Lord of all creation, the one who stands outside of time itself, decided to enter into time. The Son, by whom all things were created, took upon himself the nature of his creatures. And this was always part of the plan. He came to reconcile all creation from the fallout of sin, death, and darkness. All of creation was made with an ultimate eye towards new creation. And that's how Christ can be an heir, because only he could earn that new creation for us. Only he could become that rightful heir to create new creation. 
And that brings us to our next point, that Christ isn't only the firstborn of all creation, but he's the firstborn of the dead. He's the Lord of new creation. Verse 18, we see Paul almost repeat himself, but instead of calling Jesus the image of God and the firstborn of all creation, we see him call Jesus the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And once again, as is so common with this passage, we ask ourselves, what does Paul mean by firstborn from the dead? It means, first off, that Jesus is the very first person to truly be raised from the dead. The first, not only the firstborn, but the first reborn. Something new has happened at the resurrection. There's a new state of affairs. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23 reads this, and notice all the overlap in terminology. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, so by one man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So we see that he is the first to truly be raised from the dead. But second, it means that by his resurrection, Christ has brought forth new life. He is the beginning of a completely new state of affairs for those who are in Christ. By his resurrection, Christ put everything under his feet, including the powers of sin, the powers of death, the powers of darkness. They have no claim over us or over him. He put them under his feet. If we continue with 1 Corinthians 15 verses 25 through 26, he says, For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see, Christ has made a definitive break with the forces of death and darkness. He has introduced life and light where formerly there was that death and that darkness. And it can't be overstated how huge this is. It can't be overstated just how different things are because Christ is resurrected. A good human comparison, which I don't want us to overinterpret or take too seriously, but as a way of an example, is thinking about the Berlin Wall and the tearing down of that wall. For many people, this represented a definitive break with the way that things were for a certain group of people. If you ever watched those news stories, the wall was torn down and people were literally taking steps into a brand new life. And reflecting on this event, former uh, President Barack Obama said this, that November 9th, 1989 will always be remembered and cherished in the United States. Like so many Americans, I'll never forget the images of people tearing down the wall. There can be no clearer rebuke of tyranny and there could be no stronger affirmation of freedom. Everything changed for those in Europe that day, and in a much greater way, in a way that doesn't even begin to compare, we have everything changed for us. Christ has dealt that rebuke of tyranny. Christ has brought that affirmation of freedom. He has made a completely new state of affairs so that we are taking those steps over that domain of sin and darkness, going over that wall, so to speak, and entering into a whole new state of affairs into a whole new life that was earned by Christ. And so we see that tyranny, oppression, and death do not have the final say because Jesus was raised from the dead and raised to glory. Because the resurrection is true, new life has ushered forth 
out of darkness. And so just as Jesus is preeminent in creation, Paul is saying that Jesus is also preeminent in his new creation. He's the firstborn from the dead so that in everything he might be preeminent. Everything that was created and everything that will be created, he's the foremost. He is of, of all glory and supremacy. And it means that everybody who's joined to him, that he is our head. He's the head of this new creation. And it means that we are also a new creation if we are joined to him. 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. There's something really interesting about the Greek. And I know, as soon as I say Greek, I already roll my eyes too. But I had a professor that always pointed this out to us, and I think it's beautiful, that in the Greek, it almost reads more like this. If anyone, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. There's not even a second for any more words to go in. If you're in Christ, new creation. A whole new state of affairs. You are a new creation in Christ as soon as you are united to him. These realities are true for you because he didn't just come to purchase this new life and this new state of affairs for himself. He came to rescue us. He came to recreate an entirely new people for himself. So just as sin and death and darkness have no dominion over Christ, just as they have no power over Jesus, if we are in Jesus, it means they have no power over us either. They have no power over us. And so verse 18, we see that he is the head of the body, the church. He lived, died, and rose again to purchase us and to make us a people for himself. He didn't come for his own sake, but he came for our sake. Every single thing that Christ has done, he has done for us. He came to save us out of our death, out of our slavery to sin and darkness, and to make us a new creation. And so he is the Lord of new creation. He is the Lord of his first creation. As the God-man, as one who is fully God and fully man, he is uniquely equipped to both sustain and to reconcile all things to himself. Verses 19 through 20, they highlight this dual reality that on the one hand, he is the sustaining, creating Lord of creation in whom the fullness of God dwells. And yet, on the other hand, he is the Lord of new creation, who is made peace only by the blood of the cross, by dying on that cross for us and raising to new life. And therefore, we see the very heart of this passage is in verse 17. In him, all things hold together. Every single thing that we have talked about so far holds together in Christ. He is the head of everything, the foremost of every single thing, every single thing that we can see and think. So we don't need to worry about the powers of this world, whether they're visible or invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. They've all been reconciled in Christ through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension. He is truly Lord over all, and he eradicated the domain of sin, death, and darkness. But Jesus didn't merely come to eradicate sin and death in the abstract. It's not as though he saw these things as a cosmic nuisance that he just wanted to clean shop, but he did it for us. He came to save sinners, which brings us to our final point, that he is Lord over us. He's not just Lord over creation and new creation. He is Lord over us. He came so that he could have the final say over us. He could have the final say. Not sin, not death, 
not darkness, not the craziness of this world. Instead, he is Lord over all so that we could be his. He came so that he could say of sinners, mine, they belong to me. And they are defined by what I have done for them and nothing else. In particular, the passage tells us four things that Christ came to do for us through his life, through his death, through his resurrection and ascension. First, Jesus in verse 13 says, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We now live under a new regime. Christ is our Lord. We no longer serve sin and the law with fear, but we serve Christ with gratefulness because he delivered us. He saved us. We are no longer in chains to these things. He tells us that sin and death don't have the final say. These things that we deal with no longer have lasting power over us. And so if you find yourself caught in the midst of an ongoing sin, if you feel like growth and holiness is hopeless, if you feel like your sin has the final say, this is a reminder to not give up. It's a reminder to press on because we will never be fully rid of our sin this side of glory. We will all meet death at one point. We'll all struggle with our sin day in and day out. But Jesus promises us that in the midst of that struggle, we are no longer defined by our sin. We are no longer defined by these bodies of death. He no longer looks upon us in judgment. He looks upon us with grace. And since we have that promise, we can press on and trust that Christ will finish the good work that he has started within us. Sin doesn't have the final say. These bodies of death don't have the final say because we are united to the one who has been resurrected to a new body. We are united to the one that is the visible display of the hope that we hold before us. And so he has delivered us and transferred us into a new kingdom. Second, Jesus in verse 14 says that he has given us redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the point of the cross, right? It's forgiveness. We can never pay the debt that we owed God on account of our sin because our sin made a definitive break with God, but the cross and the resurrection made a definitive break between us and sin, between us and death. So if you are tempted to think that God forgives, but perhaps doesn't forget, this is a reminder that he says, as far as the East is from the West, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And remember, he knows just how far the east is from the west, because in case you forgot, he created both of those too. And third, Jesus in verses 21 and 22 says that he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death, even though we were once alienated and hostile in mind. See, the cross not only reminds us that the guilt of our sin is gone, but it also reminds us that the offense of our sin is done away with too, because we're not only guilty and guilty of our sins before God, but we also have been made enemies with God because of our sin. We're not just criminals, but we're enemies against God as a result of our sin. And so the cross, it doesn't only make us clean, it makes us children. So as we read this morning, we can come before the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we will find mercy and grace from our heavenly father. He doesn't just make us clean, he makes us children and has reconciled us to the Father. And then finally, Christ came and died, verse 22, to present us blameless and above reproach before him. 
Everything that belongs to Christ now belongs to us. His blamelessness, his righteousness, his inheritance, his standing as a child of God. It's all ours. Everything that belongs to him belongs to us. Just like when we get married and we use that analogy that what's mine is Tiffany's, what's Tiffany's is mine. The same is true of Christ, that everything that he has done for us is truly ours. And so that means that he presents us before God. Because I think that sometimes we think that Jesus merely sneaks us in the back door. I think we think that Jesus is standing in front of us trying to play interception before God so that he can sneak us in and that God doesn't truly delight in us. He only delights insofar as he can see Christ. That's not what this verse says, is it? It says that Christ presents us blameless and above reproach before him. It means he's not boxing us out and hiding us, but he is leading us up before his father, presenting us as clean, presenting us with the exact same record that he has. He's presenting us as Christ himself. And so we know that he presents us ultimately as who we are. That if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. And that's exactly how Christ presents us before his Father. He shows us and presents us as who we are. And so this passage, it ultimately shows us Christ and all his lordship, glory, beauty, and grace. He alone is worthy of all praise because of who he is and what he has done as Lord over all. Therefore, we join together this morning, called to remember that he is Lord over creation and new creation. Called to remember that this loving God has done so much for us, that the cosmic creator became the suffering servant for your sake. He loosed the bonds of sin and set us free from captivity to death. He took strangers and enemies and recreated us into children of his heavenly father. In him, we have deliverance, redemption, reconciliation, and we are presented as a new creation. So in this ever-growing world where we have access to everything and anything all of the time, in this world that seems to be growing more and more fractured and confusing and big by the day, in this world that seems broken beyond repair, look up and see the resurrected Christ. He is not a powerless Lord. He is not a Lord of wishful thinking. He is not a Lord who is unable to give an answer to sin, death, and suffering. He's not unable to give an answer to this world because he's given an answer on the cross and in the resurrection. His answer to this world is that he is Lord over all creation and new creation. He has reconciled all things to himself, so we need not despair because he's reconciled us to himself. And we can have hope and reconciliation with God. And as Paul says in verse 23, this is the hope of the gospel that you've heard. So press on. Remember what Christ has done. Remember who he says you are now. And press on in this gospel that he has given us. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are Lord over all creation and over all new creation that you were not content to leave us in the state of affairs. You were not content to leave us in the midst of our sin, of our death, of suffering, Lord, but you decided to enter into your very creation, that creation that you made from the very beginning, Lord. You decided to enter into it for our sake, to become fully God and fully man together, that you may live a perfect life for us, that you would die on a cross for us, that you would raise to new life, 
so that we could be united to you and also be raised to do new life. And Lord, you dwell in the midst of that new life now. You are actively seated at the right hand of our Father. And so we have hope. We know that because you sit there now, Lord, we know that we do not hope in vain. We know that as you are resurrected, we will one day be resurrected and reunited with you. And so, Lord, as we look forward to that day, give us hope. Remind us of the deliverance, the reconciliation, the presentation that you have given us in yourself by the cross, by the blood of the cross, Lord. And pray that as we move forward in this life, that we may display that gospel, that every moment of death in this life may always be met with new life and resurrection that we know that we can never be separated from you because you've united us to yourself. Nothing can tear that bond apart. So Lord, as we go forth, encourage us. May we seek to proclaim your word to those who don't know you. May we look upon others with compassion and with love and seek to show them your glorious grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.